You are listening to Smokin' Theologians, a long-form conversation with hosts Alex Gonzalez and Preston Graham. Alex is a filmmaker, digital creative, and our designated layman. Preston is a church planter and pastor, author, and our theologian. This is Season 2, Episode 9. Like, I love it when I've done all my exegetical work for this coming week's sermon on Monday. Yeah. And if I could get that exegetical work done, at least I know what that word's gonna be, even if I've not packaged it or done any of that. And I find myself just sitting on it for the rest of the week, yeah. sort of soaking in the, in the exegetical stuff, and then I'll put the package together on a Friday or something like that. But, but that's not what we're talking about today. No. Well, yeah, yeah, kind we're, ta- of. we're talking about works. Yeah, what we're do you work- mean by works? I, I, what would you I've think? What comes the, to your mind? I've always thought the word works means vocations or what you do with your hands or what you do with your life, essentially. What you do uh, in all types of spheres of your life. But, you know, you can work as a father. You can work as a, you know, everything. I watch my own father. I mean, he's constantly doing chores. Yeah. I consider that work. Um, but when we were talking, we we're going to talk about works today. And good works. Good and works. Under the rubric of what's described as sanctification. Yeah. This idea of being made more holy. That's the word sanctification, being made holy. But, but we're, we're, maybe we need to define the term works. Mm-hmm. Well, the way you use works, and I, it makes sense. I suspect most people, that's probably the first thing you think about. Work is, I would not, I would not um, equate works with maybe another word, which I think is the way you're taking it, which is vocation or calling. So for instance, you just gave an illustration about being a father or being a engineer or being a medical doctor or being a pastor, whatever. All of those would, in my mind, I think more in a biblical sense, we would think of that as a calling, as a biblical vocation. And yes, it is a good vocation which therefore makes it a good work if it is but but if you think about say a father the vocation of fatherhood then there's a whole lot of things that is a good and moral way to be a father which are good works so maybe we can you know that at least that's the way i would parse it now i don't know i mean i don't want to diminish the fact though that all vocation unless it's contrary to scripture but whether it's a common grace or a special grace directed vocation, um, is a good work, you know. Um, even with bad intentions, even with well, deep but, down. Well, but that's the key. And, but then, it, is it more? Is it a good? If you mean a good work, as in a all callings, I think, insofar as they serve the common good and serve the redemptive purposes of God, either or, both and, you could call it a good work yeah. in a loose sense. But within those vocations, and we have, you know, generally three vocations that are related to church, state, and family, um, there are good works and there is sin. But I think typically in the Bible, you could almost suggest that good works is the opposite of sin. Good works is the opposite of sin. So a work... So is it even possible to do any kind of good works then? Well, so for instance, good works in the Bible, uh, probably the most consistent definition of a good work would be, uh, well, certainly you would want to first tie it to the image of God. And when God made Adam and Eve, uh, prior to the fall, the law that describes the image of God in a good work way Uh, was uh, less developed because Adam and Eve were living in the imitation of God. There was a genuine communion with God that was unbroken in the garden of Eden. And so with that unbroken communion, imaging God as they were made in the image of God to do was a good work. And when they did the, when they sinned and they broke that fellowship with God by rejecting God's lordship, now comes the law in a much more developed way, particularly through Moses, that needs to compensate for our distance from God. And we call that the law, the law of God. And most of scripture 
if you want to talk about good works or sanctification or being holy, is going to reference the law as, a, as how we would define a good work. Now, what does that con the con what does the law conjure up in your mind? Um, I mean, yeah, I'm I, seeing first, your face. Yeah, kind of first of all, I'm bit. having a hard time finding <laughs> correlation because I, yeah, I, well, before I even go there, one thing that you just said is interesting is I think this law kind of adapting in time. You know that the, the law was in certain conditions in the Eden before the fall of man. That there was a law. I was asking you off air. It's like, was there even a law in Eden? What did there, there need was. to be one? Absolutely. And but it was much more rudimentary yeah. in that it was all summed up under the title of, you know, not being a law unto yourself, but submitting to God as was was ceremonially, if, if, if I think, imaged in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How would we then live? live? How then should we live, Adam and Eve would say, according to what God in his law which is do not do what's right in your own eyes but acknowledge me as the arbiter or the revelatory basis for what is good or bad when Adam broke fellowship with God they took it upon themselves to discern good and evil and that's where they broke the law they did broke break the law to fill it out, it'll be interesting to you, though, so I can just get it out of the way. It's a nice little backdrop. So, yeah, pre-fall, it was primarily an imi imitation of God manner of knowing good from evil because of this close communion. Post-curse, we then have the Mosaic Law, which, which comes through in a much more detailed way, which is now compensating for the space and the cleavage between God and humanity. In Christ, when he comes and we are born again, now we have, we're given again the spirit and we're of two natures, both spirit and flesh, in this age right now under Christ. And so we are living under both the imitation of God. So you see this emphasis of imitating God a lot more in the New Testament than a lot of the Old Testament. But you also still have laws. So we're sort of both imitation of God and according to the law. And then in, in heaven, yeah, I don't think we'll need a law. Uh, the law will be uh, gone, and that we now have this perfect communion with God, with perfect natures now, not prone to evil. We'll be glorified and perfected, and so it'll truly be back to a full-fledged imitation of God. But yeah, right now, if you ask me what's a good work, probably this, yeah. the most clear and concise would be obedience to the law of God. And you think about the Ten Commandments which you should think of 10 chapter headings or titles, of which there are many rules that follow. Is that, good, is that, that follow. good works or is that just good obedience? Is there such a... Well, it, but it's obedience, but it's obedience to the law because the law explains what a good work is. So don't steal. But we, if you want more on this, I can, but, but, but the, don't, the 10 commandments are given in the negative, which always implies the positive. And you'll see that in Levitical code. So it's like code. don't steal, um, uplift others. Rather, work with your own hands, says Paul, gotcha. so that you might help those who are in need. Gotcha. So to, the law would be any good work is to help anyone in need. Um, it's to work hard and to be self-sufficient to the degree that you would have even more so that you might then give to those who have need. And so there's a sense in which good works is then in just that one area and there's a whole slew of laws then that would come under that rubric, which would describe this idea of, of giving to those who have need in a common grace way or in a special grace way. And you could say thou shalt not murder means give life to people. And then Jesus comes along and says, but it's more than just, you know, the positive in implying the negative or the negative implying the positive either way. It's also, um, it has to do with your attitudes and your heart and your motives and your desires. So all of that gets into a good work. Let's talk about that for a second, the idea of motives. Yeah. You know, is it is it possible, we were talking off air, is it even possible to do any kind of good work that's truly devoid of sin or, or truly pure, another way to put it, my father growing up told me that one of his uh, high school professors 
uh, challenge to the class, like try to find a single act that you do during the day, throughout the day, that's not inherently selfish act. Even if it's helping somebody else, that might be to say, hey, look at me, I helped somebody else, or win a favor for somebody in the future. And that, that, and, and, and that stuck with me for years, and I disagreed with it so, I don't what, know. What, what was your disagreement? Um, but what do you think it should be? What would be the right? It just way to bothered think that? me that like that there 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 wasn't a single action on earth that we could do that wasn't inherently selfish, um, and I couldn't wrap my mind, you know, that logic game, um, and find a good example. The only thing I think it comes close is Christ laying down his life for laying down your life for a brother, for I, an enemy even. For an enemy, I think that yeah, is. I mean, Paul, Paul well, says that it's one thing to lay down your life for a friend. Yeah. It's another thing to lay down your life for those who are in enmity with you, which he did for us. So in that kind of school of thought, in that kind of sphere of, of thinking of could any kind of, you know, you, you could, you could just look, I don't, want, I don't want to start talking to politicians, but I think they do it often. Like, look at what I have done in my, in my tenure here. I have put up this school. We have lowered that tax and blah, 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 blah. Uh, you could, you could, the, the capitalist, the financier, the teacher, the, we, the pastor, for, we all could boast of our works. Sure. As if. That's different from my, what I'm hearing than good works, if that makes sense, because it could be a good, we have a human, a secular definition of a good work is something that maybe is applied to the society at large or, um, yeah. Do you think we could do a good thing with a bad motive? Yes. So you could now distinguish between. I think God uses bad people all the time, or yeah. Yeah. fallen truly like away yeah. from people all the time. To and, and that's, we call that common grace. The, the, the mystery of how God restrains the evil in the world such that even those who may do things for evil intents, some of what they could do could be for good um, in the world. So say an artist who, who draws with a, very selfish intent of wanting to have prestige and glory and and fame and money and it's all selfishly motivated but that art could be as I'm looking one right there that art could be very beautiful and very edifying and very you know medicinal even you know and so there is a complexity here that I think you're 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 wrestling with that is biblical complexity where we live in an eschaton, in, a, in an age where, again, we are both, at best, we are born again, given a new creation spirit within us that is motivated and is in conformity to God and good work and, and good. And yet we continue to have a remnant of the flesh so that Paul over and over describes that this gets so battle dangerous. between the spirit and the flesh. Sure. We have two natures. And so... And we also believe in total depravity, which means that this spirit flesh thing is is total in the sense that it affects all of our faculties, all of our aptitudes, all of our, it affects my mind, my heart, my desire, my affections, my hands, my works, you know, my physical works. And so I would say your your wrestling is probably a good sign that you're you're seeking for in this life, a little bit more complexity. It's not going to be probably an either or. It's probably going to be, I think, I think in in degrees, or we could call it in approximations, we can be more and more holy or good or loving. Remember, God summed up the whole law as love God, love your neighbor, and so we can certainly be more and more, you know obedient to the law or loving, etc. But I don't know that we ever in this life fully become uh, or not at some level at least stained or tainted by the flesh side which has evil within it. And that's why it's so important, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, so I won't do it now, but that's why it's so important to distinguish justification which is the the idea that we are set free from the law from the works of the law as a basis for gaining god's love and approval even as sanctification is 
wanting us to be obedient to the law in order that we might become more and more in the image of God and more and more holy or more and more loving, however, which way you want to angle, you want to describe it. I'm still not satisfied with our definition of a good works. And, and, and let, me, let me paint this picture, if I may, because... Yeah. Sisters? Yeah, I've been... Oh. You're drinking wine and whiskey at the same time? No, there's a little beer. Okay. (laughs) That's a weird combination. This is my pre-show drink when I set up all the lights and stuff. I got you. Um, I got to get here earlier with you then, don't I? Oh, we're partying here, baby. Yeah. Um, No, I'm kidding. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, conventionally, I always... or. I used to think that the conventional word for work meant like essentially what you do with your life, what you do with right. your hands, what you make, what you build. I also see it which all can be good works. Which all could be good works. But I can also Probably see, I can see it like by making evil. soup uh, a grandmother making soup for her grandson. That can, can be considered like a, a labor. Maybe I'm thinking of the word labor. But well, I think all good work can be labor, right? I but mean, even attitudes. But we're talking something deeper than that. We're talking deeper than just what we can physically do or what we could emotionally instill upon somebody. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like an adjective. Be good works, and to be honest, this is the first time I'm hearing this correlation between a good work is something of the law. I always read James, and I always thought yeah, it meant. there you go. I always thought it meant um, become a missionary or um, start an orphanage, or you know, really hang out with a lot of widows. And those type, those three things I haven't done in my life. Yeah. So is my- Cause he just gave you some instances there of what a good work would be. Like sure. that's serve a great, the poor, et cetera. Yeah. He gave, that's great. That's, and it's, and what, you're, what I'm hearing is in a way it's liberating because I always ha- kind of had that little guilt in my heart mm-hmm. that like, you know, I do video stuff and computer yeah. stuff and this kind of and stuff. you're probably helping some people get really rich even doing it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. And <laughs> and and what am I, I'm not direct, like I don't, I'm not directly involved in any kind of ministry, if that makes sense, so. Well that's why I often make a distinction between special grace, which is that grace which relates to God redeeming humanity in a salvific way in Jesus Christ, versus common grace, those things watch allow the earth to flourish and bring order to the earth in order that people might live and flourish and if you think about it common special grace is to some degree dependent on common grace and that if we weren't living and flourishing to some degree at least we were dead we were dying um, we would not have the opportunity to be redeemed to God in this life um, and so they, they work together. And that's why God is the author of both of them. You know, God, our creator, is still acting by his divine providence in works of, of you know, creation, if you will, a kind of the labor, the work, the vocations. And yet we can be motivated in those ways for the common good. That, that is a huge thing. I don't want to pass over. I think that's maybe what you're struggling with. I do think a lot of, quote, evangelical sort of born-again Christian types which, you know, I believe in being born again and all that, but I think we have horribly minimized the importance of common grace and the way that common grace is not somehow antagonistic to special grace or redemption. It's complementary, just like the, the book of creation, we call it, and the book of, Revela- of, of salvation, the Bible, they are never conflicting. It's only our wrong, sinful interpretations of either that make them conflict. But God's never, the same author of both books, is never contradicting. So too, the God who calls us to common grace and who calls us to special grace, those two spheres should never be in conflict. Um, they, they support and, and they, you know, and all that, so they, they complement. So I think back to your thing, I, I, you know, I think it was Martin Luther, the reformers really you ought to read some of the reformers, you know, uh, Luther and others that spent a lot of time trying to rebuild common grace because the Catholic Church in that era, I suspect now, wanted to make this very harsh line between sacred and secular. Sure. In a way that the only sacred 
was the only job worth to be doing. a priest or sure, something. Sure, and, sure. Um, and and it was a very minimalization. And, That's I mean, still going on today. I wish I had thought about this because I could have brought some great quotes from 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 Luther. But he would he would describe how uh, you know the parent who's changing the diaper, who's cleaning the mess of a of a diaper is. Is a sacred office, and probably God. even more sacred than some of the sacred offices. Yes, if some I'm, of the pompous crap. Because, yeah. because now, now maybe we can talk about legacy or something. Because mm-hmm. that little action, a mother cleaning the diaper, that isn't seen by anybody besides God. Yeah, and and and, yeah. and where when you're on the pulpit, and I mean no disrespect, but you're seen you're you're seen by the masses, right. and you, it can get into your head even as a con. As part of the congregation, you can say like that's. They'll see what I will do. The though, real job. What I would do from a theological perspective, rather than an anecdotal perspective. So what you're saying is maybe true anecdotally that that the things I do in private, when God doesn't see, that clearly has the opportunity for me to search my heart and my motives in a way that I, maybe maybe it does test my motives. You know, Paul said that, I mean, and Christ said that, right? To the hip, hypocrites, he said, you love to pray in the streets, and sure. you love to do this stuff and the pray and fast in a very visible way, you know? Yesterday we received the ash, you know, and you know we do it in the evening, no one gets to see you except for your cat, I guess, when you come home. But, but it's, it's a sense in which, yeah, there's a lot of stuff we could do for a lot of wrong reasons, and God knows the heart. Sure. And, and that therefore is no longer a good work, at least not at the heart level, not the desire level. So redefining it by like but I don't the want intentions. To say, but I don't want to say, that, but I would never want to say, therefore it's a better work what we do in, in private than it is a public work. I could, as a public figure, tell you there is also a whole lot of, of um, temptations to want to remain in private and not to stick your head out and get get it belted off i'm sure and so i'm sure that's the thing you miss the there's, most there's a good a motive there, there's a good motive and a bad motive for just about everything the past the the, the let's just use the politician because we always like to hate politicians especially these days um they're doing a good and noble thing you know it's a that's very a noble thing job and it's a very hard job and we should applaud that vocation now only god knows their heart ultimately, and whether they do it in a way that is consistent, there we go again, with God's law. You can't escape, though, God's law. And we got to talk about that some more at some point because we have a world that's very antinomian. So there's a word for you called antinomianism. And it's a trend that I think is, is still very present, even in Christianity, that just has this very negative attitude about law. And that that is confusing justification saved by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. But it's not because it's apart from law, it's apart from my works of the law. Because Christ did the works of the law for me to satisfy the law. You see, so that justification is true, and so but that doesn't make me an antinomian. In fact, what it should do is restore me to the law. Because now that I'm no longer fearful of the judgment and the condemnation that the law would bring by my failure to it, I'm set free from that fear. Now I'm actually free to love it again. And I don't have to diminish it now because that's what antinomianism does. It wants to reduce the law and not make it really thick and poignant. And we reduce it in order to make myself feel a little better around it, make it a little more tame. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote all this stuff about being set free from the law, also said how I love the law. And he loved the law because it was the law that saved him vicariously through Christ. And it was the law, you see, that was objective enough to where Christ could now execute it for us and that we could be saved by the law even as we are now set free. And that that's another one. But can I tell you yeah. my, so my just, own just crack that last theory? Make sure we get back to this. I want to go I'm about to talk about Remember that Paul's perspective yeah, yeah is that the law sets us free in when we encounter it in Christ. But let's go back to that later. Go ahead, what were you going to say? Even like in a, pra- so law, right? Okay, let's maybe, maybe we can paint a different picture for folks who maybe, I, I, sometimes I like in, in all of this like 
deep talk, I like to bring some like practical metaphor examples. It's like for the law. Why why do we even need a law to begin with? Um, if we're free in Christ, how can the how can a law, how can a set of rules liberate us? I was a teacher at some point in my life, and I used to tell my students make a website. They would just sit on that computer screen and not know what the heck yeah, to do. Exactly. But if I said make a website with three columns. It has to be red and it has to have three buttons. Yeah. Boom, they're off to the races and then they're it's a great illustration. and then they're able to have like their that true creative freedom because restrictions produce good art. You know, the same way a canvas, you know, it's if you're if you're an artist out there and you're ever struggling trying to like, oh, I don't know what to do, try to or music writing, try to write a song with and make a self imposed rule, like only using the letter A. Your mind is going to somehow—it's like our minds are naturally wired you have to have something a concrete. You can actually target. I can and, work off of, and then yeah, that's really creative. Yeah, if I can good. just write a song about anything, then I'm gonna be, then honestly, I'm gonna be doing nonsense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I see how that could be applied. Why the law is not to condemn us, but the law is to, is for us to live a fruitful and beautiful life. The effect of the law is three: it condemns us. Yeah which may, r drives us to the point of exasperation where we say, after we've tried and we've tried, we still can't get rid of guilt, we still can't be good. It condemns us to where we cry out, God, save me. Yeah. And then that, the law directs us to Christ, where, where the law is fulfilled, wherein we receive him as our savior. And then the law now teaches us how to live in the fullness of life that he created us to live. And Paul would say it this way, for freedom, Christ has set you free. And he'll say that in Galatians after he's just condemned those who seek to, to, by the law, to be justified with God. And yet now he's talking about freedom and then he directs us to the law, which is gonna set us free. And see, this is the thing. In Christianity, we, in, in, in modernity, let me kind of get a little philosophical a bit. We were set free. There was a movement to set us free from any kind of external law. Okay, and so we see law as enslavement. Uh, governments. In modernity, and, you, yeah, and that means a, that post enlightenment. Yeah, post enlightenment. And so there's this thing about we're very antinomian in a sense, and we don't want law. We want freedom. And freedom we define as being set free from any external law. We can do whatever we want, which the Bible calls being enslaved to sin. So the Bible doesn't see humanity as absolutely free. In other words, that's the myth of the post-enlightenment, sure. is that, we're, that we have this absolutely free will. And we, it's like a blank slate, and we can just do anything with that blank slate we want. And there's no moral rules, there's no anything. And today we live in a world where it's even gotten more, what we call postmodern, which is really just more modern, where it's actually come to the place now of, look, what, what is the one law? Let me, you do you, me do me. As long as you're not hurting as me. As long as you're not hurting me while you do it. Think about what that says. And so into that, I'm using this word law, and that's pretty offensive sounding to that worldview. This idea, you're telling me that law is good? rules external coming from god to me and the church now gets to pound that into my head and and i'm and being disciplined and disciplined if i don't do it and, and hold you accountable so we got a big problem here man i'm sitting here talking about law in a way that is totally out of touch it, yeah. it would appear so the bible though comes to this and says no you don't understand no one is born absolutely free we are born into a we have a nature and we now know post-fall that that nature is corrupt and that nature has a tendency to self-destruct. It's a death nature. Idols destroy us. Things that we, you know, sin destroys us. The, the work, these laws are meant to set us free from those things which bound us into things. So for instance, um, I had some notes that uh, I was trying to think of some examples where envy, you know, thou shalt not envy. That's a law. Thou shalt not covet. Covet. I mean, can anyone argue <laughs> that at the root of half the world's problems and death and sin and destruction is coveting? 
thousand million percent. I mean, like, let's just, uh, like, especially in, in our modern times, it's look what the rich have or look what they have. If they only shared their wealth in this way, then those folks. Yeah. And that yeah. to me is, yeah. that is the root of that is, I know this is super unpopular, but the root of that kind of thinking is that so concept of he has more than me. You haven't had children. You were a child as I was, but you haven't yeah. had children yet. I want them. So ladies. Annie over there has a child. Just kidding. Annie, I bet you never taught your child to covet. And I bet your child covets all the time. I mean, it's just, I want that. Especially when you get two kids. Oh, it becomes coveting. Who has what? Fiasco. Yeah. I mean, just, just you know, Stephen having what Nathan didn't. Nathan wanted to go grab it and get it from him. And now my grandkids, I'm watching the same thing. The moment that little Timmy has something, you know, little Brittany, I want it and goes and tries to get it. And we all want the, we all, all, we all just not just want a cupcake. We all want to have the bigger cupcake. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It yeah. gets bigger and bigger. I want their house. I want their car. Yeah. God forbid. I want their husband. I want their wife. God forbid. You know, it just goes off. And now that's just one tiny, that's one tenth of the law in summary fashion, not mention all the thousands of things that come out of that. And how could anyone argue that we'd be better off to be set free to do what's in our nature to do? So the enlightenment says we are absolutely free. The Bible says, no, we have freedom. We have a free will, but it's always relative to that nature within us that is driving our, our motives and driving our ambitions. And we know that our nature is corrupt. Even as a Christian now, we have been set free from that corrupt nature. We actually didn't have a choice between we were born again in some manner. Now, we did have some common grace in us. I don't want to diminish that. But generally, the Bible perceives that when you are born again and you receive Christ and he gives you a new spirit, a new created heart, now you actually got some competition going on between the sinful nature and the spirit nature. And Paul says, for freedom, he has set us free. And he's talking about setting us free that we might be obedient to the law. And I think that's true freedom, because we're talking, you know. I mean, every, and so it's never a freedom from without being a freedom to, because we're gonna be enslaved. I don't care what we do. I Can, can we talk so about either, that for a second? Yeah. Because that, that's something that I think we're, maybe you and I are taking for granted that we, we know what that means, but the concept of being a slave, a good slave, if you will. Yeah. It's in our nature, it's hard to argue. Yeah, that's probably a harsh word in, in today's vernacular. Sure. I, I um, think we should, you know, but let's say a servant of, or servant. something that's, it's more than even just a servant though. It's a servant which can't really untether itself. It's because we're so tied to it. Something a like tethered that. servant. The tethered servant, there we yeah. go. <laughs> um, we all in our nature are, you know, tethered servants to whatever God we have, right? So, that's right. That's so right. if we don't, worship Yahweh or this thing smokes kind of slow. They kind Sorry. of like, you know, our, our, you know, whatever our idol is going to become our God and we're going to become a, a servant to it. You know, if it's, if it's legacy, if it's publicity, you're going to do yeah. things. And that's why you have people doing really embarrassing. This is my opinion, horrid things like for what? attention. Yeah. Like what? Like what do you mean? Uh, I, that I don't you would say, say is just horrible or whatever. Uh, Silly. Uh, um, for some reason, I'm thinking of pornography, of of of, of, mm. of because of the intent of that is because they they want attention and and they want to, yeah. um, be a star essentially, or you know, and and that that's an extreme example, but I think of that, you know, the entertainment folks. Look at my own life. I mean, I, I see myself wanting. For me, I think the the real big one we were talking about. You said you said a quote to me yesterday that kind of like really stuck was that in two generations, like essentially, most of our names are completely yeah. wiped down, forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. I lived my whole life, my early life, yearning to have a big legacy because right. I because my my heroes growing up were 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 men and women who did big things. They were they were always they weren't ball players. They weren't. It was always Thomas Edison or. You know Teddy Roosevelt or, or these these larger than life figures, and I really aspired to be one myself. To the point where I was doing, I would be, I started becoming like a little bit of an attention whore. I mean, you really think about it. Ninety nine point nine percent of humanity 
their very memory is wiped off the face of the earth within two generations. That, that's what they say. All this work, all this stuff. Now, let's distinguish that though. You, you said something, what was that ripple thing that you heard? The, the oh, quote? in the Gladiator, uh, the actions we do now, rip, I'm butchering this, the actions we do now rip, are, ripple for eternity. For eternity. Yeah. Now, think about the difference of that. On the one hand, hey, hey man, this is a really profound quote, I think, um, because that you shared with me. And, and that is that on the one hand, the name Preston Graham or, and what people would know about me particularly is going to be erased off the face of the map. Now, there may be some exceptions as, you know, if I write a book and let's say my book, you know, makes it through many generations as a staple. And well, okay, they'll know something about what I thought about something. <laughs> they'll know the name, but not the man. Well, they'll know the name, but not the man. That's a great man. They'll associate the name with the book I wrote, A Kingdom Not of This World, let's say. And, and so they'll do that. But, but what you said to me is really profound. And to illustrate that, many years ago, there was someone trying to make that case. He didn't have, the, I didn't, he didn't have that quote, but they were making this cake, this historian, and he took a common criminal that lived in the days of, of in the 17th century here in America, a common criminal and that lived the same life in the same city as Jonathan Edwards, who was right here in the city, great scholar, great leader, some think the best theologian in, in the history of America. But So here's this guy, and then he looked at their legacy, if you look at it in terms of, of the, the people that were derived from their lineage. Just, Grandchildren, 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 grandchildren. It was unbelievable. There, there, of course, there can be an outlier. Somebody went bad in the Edwards line. Someone went good in the criminals line. But it was unbelievable how predictable it was that this legacy, if you will, not of name, not of prestige, but just looking at the lives, the habits, the patterns, the values, the work ethic. I don't know how you would, you know, all the things that come out of good works, what you call a good work, honesty, um, don't lie, you know, all that. It, the way in which that shaped successive generations was very noticeable and profound that went beyond just coincidence. In that sense, see, I think our works live forever. And even in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, there's an interesting, so you ask the legacy, you're really into this legacy thing, right? trying to understand it, which is cool. In 1 Corinthians 3, it describes how we will be judged and that our works will be judged. Not So I will be judged in Christ, out of Christ. In Christ, I pass through the fire. Out of Christ, I don't. We were talking but about my that. works, too, will be judged, it says in 1 Corinthians. And those works that are built on, you know, gold and it, you know, kind of describes these sort of material worldly things will not pass through the fire. But our works that are good works, they will pass through the fire and somehow they will remain with us and the legacy that we have in heaven. Now, I don't know what that is. I can, can we I'm, also maybe define, if I may, good works, is, it seems the way we're defining this, it seems more of a application of motivations and intentions rather than good deeds. Well, it's Be both. Well, the reason we, I think we need to make distinction is because then we can, people could start thinking, oh, I need to just real, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but get under the assumption that they need to just be, do good deeds, good deeds, good deeds to a point where that could kind of turn idolatrous. And then they go back to James saying like, do I really have faith? Because the last month I didn't really be such a good public servant. Or you know, a citizen. So I, I, I really want to nail down when we meet when we say good works. We mean it's a it's a result of our changed heart. It's the fruit yes. of our changed heart. Yes. Or is it a make me maybe it can be both? Is it a good deed the way we would? It, yeah, I don't want to diminish. I, a good deed could be a good deed. I give you. I give a, someone who needs bread some bread make it simplistic it's a good thing but the irony even if you were a little pissed about it it's still okay, a good thing well for that person it is <laughs> exactly so that but so, so. for me and my relationship with god god knows and it it would not suffice as a good d good work 
at least not at the level of my heart and desire. And it would not pass through the fire, at least at that level, you know. And so there's a sense in which a good work, if it's meant to be holy, is not holy without the fullness of deed, you know, word and deed, or heart and deed. And so, I mean, there, there's a genuine sense, I think, in which we have to, you know, this idea of sanctification or to be holy without which we can't see God, the Hebrews writer said. There's something about our unholiness that prevents us from seeing God and being intimate with him. So we certainly, you know, the thing that happens to you when you become a Christian is you, you turn from hating rules, the rules of God and the rules of the law, to loving it. Why? Because again, in Christ, we've been set free from the fear of condemnation of the, of the so a good, I think a good test as to whether you're really experiencing, I don't mean just ascending to the gospel, but you're experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that you truly can say with Paul, I love the law. And therefore, if a prophet were coming into your life through a friend, through a pastor, through a kid or a father or mother, whatever, and they, and they expose to you the law of God, you're gonna love them for it. You're gonna love the conviction of sin. I have a particular elder that comes to my mind in my church. And he prays all the time. You know, we, we pray right before the worship. All the time he will pray, God, we pray that you will bring conviction of sin. Mm. He wants it. He loves it. Because it sets him, he knows. He's experiencing the gospel. He's not afraid of the law of God. And he knows that the law is going to direct him and guide him to where his family will be blessed, to where his, himself will be blessed. There's a whole ripple effect of good works, is my point, that you're making that will be real or not based on your life. And so I don't want to say that your works don't matter. They really do matter, and that's called antinomianism. And a lot of good Bible-believing Christians, or I shouldn't say good, a lot of Bible-believing Christians who have received the gospel, who've been admitted to the Lord's table, who go to church, could still have this attitude that's not demonstrating they're really experiencing the gospel yet, which is an attitude that hates the law and hates anyone that reminds them of it. And God knows that. You know, God is, you know, he condemns Israel because when he sent them prophets, they condemned them for it, they resisted him for it, they hated him for it. And the very prophets were coming in order to reveal the law of God that would set them free from their own self-destruction and their family. Can we call it the law of love? Because well, that is what it is. Because all law is love. Because if I may, because like I can, I, I can, I can almost get to that mind state of like why you would hate the law. Because I remember once I was at a bar when I first became a Christian, and an old high school friend said like, "But let's make sure what you mean by that. It's not the law of love in the sense that I feel love when it comes to me." Exactly. It's the law that is love. Just the very the law same way that is there is the law of physics, the law of okay. you know there are certain immutable. It's hard, to, you know. We'll try, but it's hard to defy gravity. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do. There are certain natural laws. Okay, the reason I'm saying all that is there's certain natural laws that are for our benefit. The law of physics. I thank God that there's to know it is to live according to it, which means you're going to live a good life. If I if I know the law of you know gravity or whatever you call it, I don't jump off a building. Sure. So that's a good law. That's a great, and, and it's, it's again, to, so for you to have a fruitful... So the law itself is loving. Exactly. Just the law itself is it's, a rule that comforts with reality in a way that saves me. And that's really liberating because, you know, I think Christianity, at least in the United States and as a whole, gets yeah. a bad rap that we are some folks who are like, well, you got to do this or else, this or else, and then we're living by some kind of like... What's it called? The, the, the code or, or the hemorrhage? See, what those people experience probably, let's give them at least a reason, or us. Legalistic like They felt it as a way to condemn me and to reject me. Sure. But if the gospel has taken that fear away, and I'm experiencing that freedom, for freedom, he has set us free. Setting, be, I'm going to interpret that this way. Having been set free from the fear of the law and its condemnation, I am now being set free from sins by the law. Law is by its very nature a, an act of God's love that he gave it to us. Because it's like that law of gravity. If I know it, it saves me. 
if I know the law of the Ten Commandments, if I know the law of uh, don't forsake worship, the law, you know, respect your elders. I mean, I could go on, you know, don't exasperate your children. Now, I want to be fair here. You know, whatever it is, um, those laws save us yeah. and they do good. They're, you know, another way to think of the law is, is wisdom. You know, the whole book of Proverbs is based on the law. You can't, all the Proverbs you could tie to some law of God. And yet they, it, but the way it frames it is that the law is wise and you it's know, good. That, you know, Proverbs is really the first book I read in scripture that really got me realizing that there's some truth to scripture. Um, that it's not just some kind of yeah practical uh, truth kind of thing practical truth that it's not just some mythology yeah. but you know when you when you follow the proverbs and you actually i don't know i went through a season where i was just reading them all the time and i was actually seeing things in my life that were applied to those exact principles work hard and become a leader be lazy and become yeah. a slaver work work hard not for man May i wish i had the capacity and the will I might have the capacity, might be getting a little aged, but to memorize the Proverbs. But I've, I've said to my kids, at least, and, and myself, I mean, I, I think we should read the Proverbs full through, at least once a year, if not once every month. I mean, it's, it's such an incredible Those, assimilation I go, that's of where, the law. When I'm introducing somebody to, I have, a, I have an old high school friend and they, like, they're, they're interested, First thing I do is I open up Proverbs. That's awesome. Because that, that I think is it's the most practical and they see the truth and wisdom in it. Um, but if you love the Proverbs, you love, love the law. Because that's what it is. It's I do love that. It is my favorite book of the scripture. And, and yet it's given to you in a manner that, that, you, that there seems to be the, well, first of all, they're nice and pithy. <laughs> that I helps. can remember, they're, they're, they're just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can take them in my pocket. You know, and um, yeah, I, it, it's, but, it's, but if you do study the Proverbs, you want to study them in the three uses. Use number one is, I don't know of one proverb that I can honestly say I fully obey. <laughs> I know, yeah. Really? Me, my, me it, it can, every time it condemns me like crazy. Yeah. When I did a sermon series through the Proverbs, after every sermon series I did this, I, the last question before you come to the Lord's table would say, who among you can say that you are wise? And there would never be a hand, of course. They knew that, at least rhetorically. And that's when I'd say, well, meet the wisdom of God into salvation. I just quoted 1 Corinthians. Mm. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God into our salvation. And then, and then I'd say, great. And now let's, as we move away from the Lord's table, having been confirmed of God's love for us, in spite of my being unwise, we now move forward with the prayer, God, make, make us now wise unto life and unto the service of God. And um, so it's the three uses of the law again, all of which are good works. Um, yeah, I was looking. We got about, we got some time. Are we good? Yeah, we're good. I, I, yeah, last time we went a little over. Yeah, so no, now, just now a little. I'm on, I'm last on, time we went 30 <laughs> minutes over, <laughs> so I think I'm, it was. I'm on high alert. I'm feeling mm -hmm. it. Um, no, this is cool, though. This is yeah. really cool. I, this antinomian thing was one of the things I was really hoping we could get to talk about because it, it's a very destructive and very, uh, so, so, I don't know, so, death wish kind of a life to be set free from the law of God. It's like a death wish. Sure. It's like saying, it. yeah, it's, I mean, extreme example, they're both extreme if you really break it down. It's like jumping out of a plane without a parachute because you're saying, oh, I don't really believe, I don't, I don't need the law of gravity. Yeah, that's you know? right. It's that simple. Yeah. And yet these are laws that relate to much more important things even than my physical life. Amen. They relate to my eternal life. They relate to my children's eternal life. It relates to my friends. And for folks it, There's who, just this, this incredible ripple effect of sin that's destroying our world as we're right now talking in the midst of what could become a third world war over there in Europe yeah. right now with, you yeah. know, with, with what's happening so sadly. But you look at that kind of stuff and you just think, this stuff started with a, something, you know, there's ripples. And then as it, our lives have impact, even though our names won't last past a couple of generations. They matter, and, it, and if you don't believe they matter, look where we're staying. Did, is anyone alive who built this building? 
Right. Is that you and know? Do we know who it they, is? They say in technology, and they say in technology often that we're all we always are standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Meaning that before we have all of our cell phones and all this stuff, there had to be Newton. Before yeah. that, there had to be people doing electricity. There had to be uh, Faraday. Um, and yet, there's, you know, they're sitting over in a grave and no one knows them. You, you walk through that grave, you know, over there at Grove, and we walk, Lisa and I walk over there sometimes, and. And you know, you just see name after name after name. And you wish, I wish that they would put more about him. I wish you could really, you know, was he a teacher? Was he a, you know, you'd kind of like to know that stuff. I wish, you know, you do it. I think a lot of people don't do it because they would say, and I probably won't either, but it's because it feels a little bit arrogant, you know. How so? Well, just, it's back to that legacy thing. Am I trying to boast of whatever I did on earth? I don't know. But I think it'd be good just to say, yeah. I mean, some of them will say husband, teacher, you know, dog lover. Yeah. If my, what would you say on your, your grave? I'd oh. probably say, yeah. Say about me? Yeah, well, let's see. What do I say about you? Uh, let's not play that game. I, okay, let's not play that I don't, game. I don't like to play We're that being game. tempted, aren't we? We are playing. We are. We are, To You know what's funny? You can indirectly, I found lately, you can indirectly boast by boasting. Oh, yeah. I could give you a big compliment, and 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 then you'll give me back one, and I'll give you another, and then there we are boasting. Yeah. And right. and it's like, but it's like a humble kind of boast because. Or it could be very contrite because I'm invoking you to tell me how good I am. Sure. <laughs> sure. Ay ay ay. We're sinful. So the fact that we ha- we still are have a wild blend, yeah. a smorgasbord right. of of good thing, uh, sinful natures, flesh, and 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 God's spirit in us. Is it even possible for a human to do a good work at all? Or is good works only result of external, God's external spirit working through us so that we take, I mean, you, get, you see where I'm going with this? Like, is it possible without the spirit of God to do a good work? That's right. I don't, I don't know. It, we can do, we can add to the not common full, grace. Not, not at the level that we can do it because it would always be selfish. Without yeah. that, without the gospel, what we'd be doing is for self-interest. Even if it's the f- fear of, of being condemned, I'm still acting out of self-interest. And, you know, and not putting you ahead of me. I'm actually leveraging you for myself. I still have a hard time think, even thinking of, I still see myself doing selfish things. I do too. Or, or good works, not for the sake of, this podcast, for example, it's, I, you know, it's beyond us. I'd like to think, and it, and it. And well, I hope it, it is at least to some degree, yeah. And for the folks out there listening, and there might be one sentence we said three weeks ago that really stirred them and got them on that journey. When we're doing this, when I'm doing it, honestly, I'm not really thinking about that. I'm thinking about like, okay, it's Tuesday. I have to do this X Y thing. You know, I'm almost working autopilot mode. I'm, I'm worried about the sound. I'm worried about the time. Right. I'm worried about why is only ten people watching this. Mm-hmm. Those are. We got more than that, by the way. We got more. (laughs) Starting now. Um, But but you know what? You get my point. So what I'm trying to argue is is that I can still be doing a godly work even if my internals are all still messed up and focused on my too much about like a performance. I want to do a good, I want to make a good color. That's the point. I mean, that's really, it's all mixed up. You know, I think that, but I do think in this idea of sanctification being made more holy, in the words of the ancient confessions, there's always this language of more and more. In other words, it's never a journey that we ever complete this in this earth. But there is a more and more, there is some optimism here, you know, that, that now there are some sins that we call habitual sins. We just have dispositions, maybe even pre-sinful dispositions that make certain sins more um, tempting. And we're going to be fighting it the rest of our life, but it's a good fight. Sure. That's the point. It's a good fight. And it's one that will have repercussions in people's lives in indirect and indirect ways. And it will have repercussions in my own life. And that's why there's a motive. But ultimately, we do it out of the love of God. I mean, really, that should be the real, you know, that we haven't really talked about motives a lot, but what is the ultimate good motive of a good work? It probably should be, well, not probably, it should be this a, a genuine love of God, a God who has loved us perfectly 
And if we ever get in this idea of resentment that God would be asking us to do this or that or this or that, it just takes for a second to stop and think. The chasm between his perfect love, one who had no obligation to love in the first place, and my love, however much I give to him, is almost eternal. It is eternal, a chasm. It's not even in the same world, you know? And so there's no way I could ever outlove God. His love has always been much more uh, proactive, much, I mean, he came after me, I didn't go after him. From the very beginning, our whole, what we call order salutis, that order of salvation events, it always stops and ends with God. I used to tell my friends who were on the, who didn't, you know, who, I don't know, who gave me a hard time at first. You know, I didn't, I felt like I was a deer shot. I, I, if this, if I was choosing religions, I would not choose Christianity. In a heartbeat, I wouldn't. Yeah. I would choose something maybe a little bit more Eastern idea or like a Zen type of. So uh, what? What? What got you through that? I mean, if you did, if you wouldn't have chosen it, why did you? What? What? What redirected you? I guess. You think that I, you I pers- tried to, I personally did. Believe- you ever try out that I, other? I. Uh, no. No, and, dude, I, and, and you know, I do think a beautiful that, Christian that's not the same as a good work. Maybe it was dutiful for your mom or something. You know what I mean? Well, I definitely. <laughs> uh, here we go throwing people under the bus. I, 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 my mom's heart and my father's heart has changed dramatically in the last couple of years. When I express that I'm a man of faith now. Cool. Um, but back then it was. I think the reason why we were going to church was to. Uh, not have our family members talk, talk, you know, yeah. where they where you know, mm-hmm. especially in Italian culture. Yeah. I mean, going to mass and that was like pinnacle to your culture. It wasn't. How, tell me, explain how you're Italian and Cuban. I'm half Italian, half Cuban. You really okay? Yeah. Your father's side, mother. My father. My father is was born, raised from Cuba. Came here. My mother. She was born here, but like a super Italian. Like. But your family was raised in a more Italian ethos. My virtually? nuclear family was—we kind of were like we're on the outliers of everyone else. Yeah. But like, both of our extended families were like ridiculously Cuban and ridiculously Italian. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like we weren't like a couple generations removed from the culture. Which one do you identify with more? Honestly, I think. Gosh. I would have said Cuban. I think Cuban. Only but I would say, Italian spiritually Probably, in the sense that you seem to reacting to that a lot uh i definitely oh man i like them both uh the italians have a certain wit and a certain uh yeah, a certain humor so that is so true. there's a certain humor in my italian side i never knew that until i moved up here yeah there's a certain uh it's hilarious you know it's a it certain, is an incredibly oh, witty culture yeah um for the cubans it's much more it feels like a more of communal culture. Yeah, see, the sappy side of you seems Cuban. The sappy? In the, in the witty, in a good I way. I think the nice you're side very, of me is Cuban. You're very soft. Yeah. Yeah, to be I mean. honest with you. The, yeah. the, it's definitely Italian. Snappiness. Oh, yeah. That's my mother. And yeah, my dad was like a nice man. Yeah. Uh, he can get sassy too. But beyond that, you know, I, 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 why, why are we talking about that? I well, think let's get back to this idea of dutifulness. Works. Dutiful. Okay, yeah. I so, do think there were, so is, due to, there is duty pressure. a good yeah. work, a w- word, I guess? You should interview my mom, that, man. She went to Catholic school with the nuns, yeah. and the, the things that they would have her feel guilty for and the duty yeah. that they would have to do, they should say that the, yeah. the calcium deposits were sins. So here, let me tell you a story about how that this word duty kind of plays out in a way. So I heard a man, um, I was using this guy who had retired, fairly wealthy person, and so he had devoted the rest of his life to a foundation that he established and how that foundation would be used, et cetera. And he told a story about how there's the dutiful gift, you could say the dutiful work, and then there's the love or the inspired work. And he said when people would come in, he was a capital, you know, a, a venture capitalist for, for the Lord, um, if you will, and people would come in and they'd give their vision. And he, he remembers saying, I remember him saying that they're, some people they come in and do this and and they weren't I wasn't inspired in this thing 
in a way that I saw it as a love for God. It was just sort of, in other words, he always knew the difference because that night he'd go, you know, after the conversation that day, he was thinking in his mind, what do I have to do to not feel guilty? That's the motivation. What do I have to do to not feel guilty? Here's a guy who's trying to get something started. Uh, maybe I'll give him 10,000 bucks, you know. Then there's the situation that comes in and, and it ties that to this greater vision of loving God and this greater vision of serving the purposes of God. And somehow it connects that what he's doing, he's doing for God. And now he's asking, you know, how can, how, you know, he's try, he's literally asking, how much can I give? He's, he's often asking that kind of, let's think bigger. I love your vision. Let's think bigger. I want to give you more, but let's do something with it. And so I think that's a real clue to me that we need to think about here about good works. That a truly good work yeah. is not a dutiful work. It's not even a bare if it's, minimum. Even if you can respect duty, dutifulness. But a good work is a work that is inspired from the love of God and the vision for his kingdom or common grace, whatever it is, in a manner that sets you free. And it's interesting that Paul, when he advises people in their giving, and again in Corinthians, I think it's 10, um, he says, God loves a cheerful giver. Think about that. That's not a dutiful giver. That's a cheerful giver. Someone who, I don't go to church dutifully because I don't want to feel guilty. I go to church because I love the people of God and I love, you know, God. And I want his law and I want his, his means of grace that I might grow more intimate with him. I'm not looking for what do I, how much church do I have to do in order to not feel guilty. It's more, it's more how much church can I do to, to more fully love and enjoy God forever. But you better be just talking about that by yourself in the corner and not be like, look how much church I've done. It, well, true. But you wouldn't because you've already been eh, satisfied. I've met folks. Yeah. Well, that's right. The dutiful Christian will have to talk about it because it's meant to relieve them of guilt and make them feel better around other people. Yeah. Whereas the truly love gift is they're doing it because it's their pleasure to give it to God because it brings them pleasure to give it to God. And and more, and, and not only things pleasurable, I don't mean to say that everything we do in using our gifts for the body of Christ, we could get into this whole thing about service and gifts of the body of Christ. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, a suffering to every gift. I would say every gift there's a suffering. I mean, you know, you you look at you just gave X amount of money, and that was a month worth of wages or something, you know. And there's times when you can think, God, I, I could have done some very selfish things with that money, you know. And um, but, you know the but, best but then, but it doesn't even hardly come up when you have it in the sense that no, it really gives me joy to participate in God's work because I it's a good work and I know it's a good work. I'd be fascinated to hear your take. You, you have to do a little homework, though. Okay. You have to watch a three-part hour length, so three hours. It's You can break it up. Documentary on Kanye West. Oh, that'd Kanye be cool. West. He just, it's all, it's deeply Christian. It, it, you know, a lot of people written. second guess his Christianity. I don't. You don't. Know, I don't know I, him at all, so I, I can't have say. never, I've always thought that and i know i'm gonna get a lot of eggs thrown at me in a way about yeah let's this. hear some let's hear some stuff here guys keep bringing yeah. it back i mm -hmm. i've always thought that that is a guy after god's heart he has everything to lose <laughs> i can't believe this he has he has everything to lose he's out in the public the the public crucified him a thousand million times yet everything how, how do you know it's not christian narcissism Oh, he's incredibly narcissistic. Okay. He's incredibly flawed. So maybe man. this is just his angle to be a narcissist. He is a incredibly you know flawed I'm being man. A little, I know. I'm not judging him at all. I know. I don't know him at all. But once you start seeing his works or what he's doing vocationally now, and always has, it's 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 at, it's it's yeah. it's out of this world. And I, I actually really truly believe that yep. he is I'm a modern day martyr for, for, for the, yeah. Wow. I, I, you gotta maybe watch, maybe <laughs> I, I just, you gotta watch it. What? I know, I know a lot of people don't like him because of a, a sound bite he said, but yeah. Um, yeah. 
Man, after watching that documentary, it was a documentary about his best friend growing up. So you're really going to make me watch this? Yes, I no, really I'm going to have to give you a report on this yes, next yeah, podcast. I, or I something. really do think because okay. that's that that's a great example of legacy <laughs> of of giant works, but little works, and you start seeing his intimate life. Yeah. Um, and he is he is not trying to pretend he's somebody else, yeah. and he's and not people calling. Well, him I mentally, hope that's true. People call him mentally handicapped. Yeah. Everyone's everyone uh, is weary of his true intentions. And and you know I do think again I'm not speaking to Kanye West. Believe me, um, I do think there's a general, almost de facto distrust of every public figure. Yeah. And I think that is unfair. I mean I do. And again I'm not that public, but but I think there's a burden to being public too that people really don't appreciate and. You know, I know a lot of the, my friends and pastors, they just crave privacy, and I know I do. I mean, I, in fact, that's, some, that's one of the sins that I'm confessing often is that I am too selfish and wanting to be away from people. And um, that's really, you know, and I love people. I really love them. I got into this because I love people. But there's a kind of other side to it where... You know, so I think well, I don't because think, you're a public person. You, so you, my you point is, I'm, I'm not, I don't think it would be right to condemn Kanye because he's an incredibly hyper public person, and we just all assume, particularly those of us who doesn't have his kind of prestige, yeah. that it's got to be an ego. Yeah, but it might not. It really might not. And and so I'm not going to do it from that point of view. But I'll listen. I'll I, I I think you'd be interested in the in the theology he has, especially towards the last episode. Yeah. And it, it really does yeah. seem reformed, and it seems. Well, I hate to end this on Kanye West, but probably it'd be I, a good you know to the uh, hope. I, I would love to because because maybe he's an example of right works. Maybe wow. he is. I'll I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. So, so here's to the possibility of good works even if not perfect. Amen. Mm. Yay. Andy, what do you think about Kanye West? <laughs> Yay, if you're listening out there. No, I'm just kidding.